So, guys, I hope you got the uh, little bracelet thing, set the example. We didn't have a lot of money to spend this year. We spent it all on Mother's Day. And so, sorry, guys. That's Okay. So, okay, we had a little money left. That's why you got the bracelet. Anyway, Sorry. happy Father's Day. <laughs> no, it's okay, honey. It's all in good fun. All right, Philippians 3. Would you stand with us for the reading of God's Word if you're able to stand? Those of you who have joined us live stream, welcome. The text is Philippians 3, 17 through 21. The title, The Power of Example. The text reads as follows. Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for this powerful section. As we move verse by verse through Philippians, what blessed uh, encouragement we have found, what strong uh, examples and exhortations we have, what encouragement we are blessed to receive. May you be glorified in both the teaching and the receiving and hearing of your word so that we can run this race with endurance, Lord, as we fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. You despised the shame. You've sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Thank you that you're interceding for your people now, cheering us on. We're so grateful. Bless the time together we have now in your word. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say? Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. The power of example. Paul opening uh, this particular section with a call to follow his example. What leads into this is Paul talking about a life goal. If you go back just for a moment into 310, this is what Paul said his life was all about, that I may know him, the him is Christ, Philippians 310, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You can link verse 11 with verse 21, and we'll get there at the end. And then a sports metaphor we talked about last time. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect or mature, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, yet but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So last time we showed you a graphic of a single runner in something like an Olympic running race. That was the metaphor. 
And many of us can relate to sports metaphors. And so we looked at that running race and we looked at fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we talk about this a lot in the church. If you've uh, been around for any length of time, you've heard Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. You've heard Colossians 3, that we're to set our mind on things above, not the things of the earth, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And I know we all have a sense of what that means, but it also could maybe be one of those things that you have a question mark about, like, how do you do that? How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus. Uh, how do I set my mind on things above where Christ is seated in the heavenlies? What are the practicals of that? How does one carry that out? And the sports metaphor is helpful, but another helpful piece is a human example. And this is Father's Day, and we have given you guys the, the bracelets that says, set the example. And the truth of the matter is you are setting an example, whether it's a positive or a negative one, or even if you're somewhere in between, right? We're setting an example. And fathers, you know, we're called upon to raise our kids in the ways of Christ and to set that example. And we're not going to be a perfect example, but we want to be as consistent as we can be. Now, most of you know I'm the father of three boys. They're now grown. And as they were growing up, I had become a Christian. Uh, they grew up in a pastor's household. My wife and I got saved on the same day. And uh, our household was really kind of growing in the things of God as we were growing in Christ. And I will tell you this, that as the boys grew up, I watched them want to follow my example. For example, I can think of times when Shane, when he was young, would have a briefcase and a clip-on tie because I used to wear a tie every day and uh, carry a briefcase. And I was the drummer on the worship team way back in the day, and Shane would put out pots and pans in the living room, praise Jesus, praise the Lord, and then he'd grab his briefcase, got to go to work now, honey, and he'd go off to work. And he was just mimicking what he had seen in me. I remember when we first bought the house in Corona, I, had, I was mowing the lawn, and he had that little bubble lawnmower, and he was following me around. And it was, it was just an ingrained thing that boys follow dad and mom. And then, you know, as Nathan was growing up, I had a chance to coach him in a lot of baseball, and we spent a lot of wonderful time on the baseball field, and I watched him grow as an athlete, and... Uh, got really many special chances to spend with him. And then our youngest decided no, no more baseball at the age of 10. And he felt a call to musical theater, something that I didn't think much about. I was pretty much a sports guy. But as he fell in love with musical theater, so did we. And we went to many plays where he was involved. And sometimes he had the lead role. And I, and I told him, I, I have fallen in love with musical theater because I love you. And uh, watching each of the boys grow was very special. And, uh, you know, the time goes by so quickly. But, you know, if you read any book on parenting, any book on biblical, biblical masculinity, you know that boys, especially boys, and, I'm, and I raised three boys, so I can't really talk about daughters, but do have a granddaughter now that I'm rejoicing in. But I will say this that they just, they watch. It's a power of an example. And I will tell you this, even though I'm a pastor, the most powerful sermons I've ever preached as it relates to my kids were not from a pulpit. 
They were in everyday life situations. And so my encouragement to you guys, and I know oftentimes, you know, we were kind of joking on Mother's Day, often this is what it looks like. Oh, moms are great. We love you so much. Way to go, moms. And on Father's Day, we're usually like, all right, get it together. Step it up, man. What's your problem? Set the example, would you? And in order to remain consistent, we're going to do that again today. So, men, we had very little money to spend on you. And not a whole lot of encouragement for you today either. So get ready. No, there's going to be a little bit of encouragement. (laughs) But I will say this. If you want to be a good example, a good example will simply be the overflow of you knowing and growing in Christ. You don't have to force a mechanical example. If you are in love with Jesus and you are seeking first the kingdom of God as best you can with all of our weaknesses and frailties that we all have, the kids will pick up on that. And they will know that you love Jesus, and this can carry over into grandparenting, great-grandparenting, leading a company, a coach, mom, whatever you are in your life. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he'll add everything to you. But let me give you a warning. If you're playing church and you're a hypocrite and you live one way out there and then you come in with the Christian platitudes, but it's not real in here, your kids will also pick up on that. And there is a power in the example of hypocrisy as much as there is power in the example of authenticity. Amen? So that's something for us to really just be thinking about. And I will tell you even this, that sometimes some of the most powerful examples that you can set is even apologizing. There's been times that I rushed to judgment with the boys, didn't hear everybody out, and quickly, you know, made my judgment, and I was wrong. And there's even power in apology. There's even power when those around you watch you apologize maybe to your spouse and say, I was wrong. You know, there's a lot of different ways to be an example. Now, Paul calls upon the church. We all need human examples. And as much as Jesus, you know, he, in chapter two, that great section, he says, let, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There is absolutely no doubt. Jesus is the supreme example. But Paul does call upon the church to follow his example. Is that prideful? I don't think so. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, follow me as I follow Christ. We all need people to model our lives after. To go with the sports analogy, for those of you who are athletes, I grew up playing baseball. That was my main sport. And sometimes you'll watch little kids try to copy the baseball stance of their hero. Or a tennis player who might be an inspiration or a golfer. You know, you watch their swing and you're like, man, I'm going to try to pattern my swing after that golfer. Or whatever it may be. It could be that you're an artist and a great artist has inspired you. You're a musician and a great, uh, you know, musical artist has inspired you. There's a lot of different ways to look at this. But here's something that we know. When you find someone who's better at something, more mature, more advanced, and you hang around them or watch them, you're better off for it. I, I've taken up the game of golf. It, is, it remains a great mystery to me. 
Uh, and people, when they watch me, say, yeah, it looks like a mystery to you. But <laughs> here's the thing. I know that when I play golf with other golfers who are better than me, I step up my game. And that's what I'm talking about, the power of example. I can even think of times when I was playing a, uh, a sport and like family members showed up to my watch, my, to watch. My mom was always at my Little League games, my greatest fan growing up. That's my son! She almost got in fights in the stands. That, that's my son! And it was wonderful to have her support. I remember one high school game, I was pitching and my cousins came. I walked the bases loaded and then struck out three guys in a row inspired by the fact that my cousins were in the stands. Here's the point. Human examples that are good and positive can and do inspire us. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Brethren, the Greek word in 317, Adelphoi, it's a family term like the family of God, brothers, sisters, join in. Join in with others is the way you could read this. Join in following my example, says Paul, and observe, that's the word scopio in Greek, it's scope out those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now Paul says, join me, and then he says us, and the us would include Timothy, in chapter 2, 19 through 30, and Epaphroditus, and many others in Philippi who were faithful examples. Bad company, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, corrupts good morals. Good company does what? It will encourage you towards a good life and good morals. It does matter the company that you keep. It does matter what you watch, what you listen to, who the primary friends are in your life. Surround yourself with good people, strong believers, those who will inspire you, and you will probably step up your game. Surround yourself with those who pull you down, and inevitably, you'll probably be pulled down. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, brothers, sisters, I want you to follow good examples, including mine, including Timothy, including Epaphroditus. Now, in 1 Corinthians, just uh, turn back a few pages in your Bible to chapter 4. The Apostle Paul planted the Corinthian church, and he loved them, but he had a lot of issues with them, including they were challenging you know, his speaking ability and his credentials, 1 Corinthians 4. And here's what he says to the Corinthian church, and I think that this is a good uh, kind of call it foundational passage, with these ideas in mind. 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul says, I don't write these things to shame you. He had to correct a lot of what the Corinthian believers were doing. 1 Corinthians 4.14. But to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel, a spiritual father, I exhort you, therefore, be, what? Imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways, which, I, which are in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, that's a good foundational cross-reference to see Paul exhorting a church, encouraging a church, saying, I'm a spiritual father to you. Imitate me. Follow the pattern of teaching that I've set up in all the different churches. It's a consistent pattern. 
built around the nourishment of God's word, the gospel, etc. Back to Philippians 3. Something else I want you to notice about the passage is that it is not an individual passage, although the scene last time we saw was kind of like an individual runner running a race, fixing their eyes on the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But now it changes or shifts or widens the focus to a group of runners. Philippians 3, 17 and 18 in the NIV read this way. Join in with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live, notice it's many, as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now join in with others in following my example. So widen the scope of the, the image. And here we've given you an image with a couple of runners to convey this idea that when you're running, you're not running alone. This is the purpose of the body of Christ. When we're running on the track, sometimes we're fatigued. Sometimes you feel like giving up. And maybe someone comes running up alongside you and says, hey, I'll help, I'll help you set the pace. Hey, you can make it. Uh, we just watched the story of Kurt Warner, who was the uh, kind of the underdog story and became the Rams quarterback. And some of the wide receivers around him, when he felt like almost like the world was against him, encouraged him in the huddle, you can do this, you can make it. This is the purpose of the body of Jesus Christ. We don't run alone. We're together, encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. This is why we need to assemble. This is why we need small group fellowship. This is why we need Bible studies, because we are not running alone. Not to mention the fact that there are people in the stands. Hebrews 11 paints them as people who have gone before us, spectators, if you will, encouraging us, like by faith, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and David and Jacob and Joseph and others ran the race. And they, in some sense, maybe just their stories alone, are encouraging us as spectators to finish well. Amen? We, you, are not alone. This is why you need to be vitally connected to the body of Jesus Christ. We join in with others as we run this race with endurance. And so I ask you, do you have a running partner? Do you have someone who's encouraging you? Maybe someone older, more mature, someone that you look up to as a spiritual leader, someone who is, maybe has more depth than you do at this present time. Maybe they know their Bible better. Maybe you would ask them, hey, can we have coffee once a month and talk about the word of God or whatever it may be? 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Timothy 1.13. In Hebrews 13.7, if you're taking notes, it reads this way. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. We all need people that we can imitate. Now, I've shared with you many times, if you're newer, you may not know this, but my dad left our family when I was four, and I never saw him again. So trying to understand even what a man was, was sometimes a bit out of my reach. I had coaches and other things and a grandfather, but, it, but the dad was missing. And I remember when I first became a believer, 
I would watch other men in the church. And I was in my early 20s at this time, and I really didn't know what a man was, frankly. I didn't know what biblical masculinity looked like. I didn't know how you were supposed to do this. And I will tell you that a lot of life and ministry is caught and not taught. Amen? There's a certain amount that you're going to get taught just by, you could say, didactic, didactic teaching, the Bible, you're diving in, etc. But you're going to catch a lot of things in life. And you'll catch them as you spend time around people who have something for you to catch. Some people who are actually throwing things out regularly that you can catch and put in your pocket. When I'm doing premarital counseling for couples, I will say this to them. I'm going to give you several things you can stick in your pocket. You may not need them now, but trust me, you will need them later. Put this in your pocket. And the idea is some things are taught, some things are caught. Now, just four scriptural cross-references to give you an example of some things that you could look at, and hopefully we'll get them up on the screen. 2 Thessalonians 3, seven, if you're taking notes, says this. 2 Thessalonians 3.7, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. 1 Timothy 4.11 and 12 reads, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Paul writes that to Timothy. In Titus 2, 6 through 8, dealing with a wider church, Paul writes, urge the young men to be sensible. Titus 2, 6 through 8. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may not in, the, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then an address to pastors, elders, and shepherds. 1 Peter 5, 3 and 4. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Over and over again, I gave you a sampling. There are verse after verse after verse addressing fathers, believers, shepherds, young and up-and-coming leaders, etc., on the power of example. It is undeniable. The Bible is calling us to something higher. The Bible is calling upon us to set the pace, to help others to know how to walk and how to live. And again, I repeat, it's taught and caught. But I will tell you that in verse 18, Paul transitions away from the positive example to the negative. Notice, Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk, or run, if we go with the sports analogy, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even crying or weeping, as Paul either dictates or writes the letter, this brings him to tears, that they, these many, are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, there are positive examples, and we need to hang around those, but there are also many negative examples. In fact, they are described as enemies of the cross of Christ. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but in about in the last 15 to 20 years, atheist groups are literally enemies of the cross of Christ. They are trying to get crosses removed from public land 
some of these atheist groups have sued grieving mothers who mark the spot of a vehicle accident where their child died with a cross and were taken to court by atheist groups to try to remove the cross because it's offensive to them and on public land. They even did this with the cross at the 9-11 memorial. They said that when they walk by the 9-11 memorial, the cross gives them a tummy ache. <laughs> boo, boo. You know my answer to that? Don't look at it then. It give me a tummy ache. Now, do you know why the cross is probably giving them a tummy ache? Because it makes a statement. But here's the thing about the cross. Think about it. Let's look at the cross for a second. What does that message convey? That there's a God who so loved the world that he gave his son. That there's a God who took the wrath of God in my place. But here's the issue. The issue with the cross also brings up something else. That we've all sinned. And our sin must be dealt with. And people don't like that. So they want crosses taken down. But I will tell you this, that the majority of commentators on this verse, Philippians 3.18, don't believe that this is some atheist group in Philippi. They say that Paul's tears reveal an insight, maybe a bit hidden in the text, and it may be this, that Paul's primary thought is on apostates. What do you mean? What's an apostate? It's a special pasta dinner that you can cook on a Friday night. No, just kidding. An apostate is someone who claimed to be a believer, made a profession, and has since walked away. Now, if you've been listening to anything for the last couple of years, you know that we have a bit of an epidemic with this. Former worship leaders who led in big bands and big praise teams have now walked away from their faith. These people are out there. And I was imagining as I was preparing for this study, you know, when we first laid out the backdrop of the church at Philippi, Paul went there and he uh, met a woman named Lydia at a place of prayer and the Lord opened her heart to the gospel. And then a servant girl, demon-possessed, was delivered uh, by a, a word from Paul, by the power of God. And then the Philippian jailer got saved. And I'm just using this for illustration purposes. I, I don't believe that this is what happened, but I want you to imagine for a moment that Paul got word that the Philippian jailer had recanted his faith. The man who said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The man who, you know, responded when they, when they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you'll be saved, and he was washing their wounds. Imagine that Paul got word that the Philippian jailer has recanted, and he's now an enemy of the Christian gospel. Imagine if Paul got word that Lydia, one that, you know, is precious to many of us who are believers, that she, he got word that Lydia no longer believes in the gospel and now she's leading an occult group or something. Or how about the servant girl who's back fortune telling or something like that? That would be so devastating. And it may be that Paul's tears and I'm not talking about these three individuals. I don't know if that was the case. I just use it for illustration purposes. But here's the greater point. It may be that Paul's tears are, I know that person. They, they made a public profession of faith in Christ, and now they're an enemy of the cross, of the gospel? What? But it happens. 
And, you know, going back to the sports metaphor, the danger of then them leading other people astray or leading them off track or off the track, if you will, is a very real issue. Who are these people? Former members at the Church of Philippi who are still in the ear of current believers? Are they the Judaizing group who claim to be believers but say that you got to keep the food laws or be circumcised to be saved? It's a bit of a mystery, but whoever they are, Paul is crying when he talks about them. And I will tell you that I believe that's the heart of Christ. Whenever I hear a story about someone who's recanted their faith or walked away or no longer on the running track, it grieves me. Some of you know people who, you know, were influential in your Christian life. They were a teacher or they led you to Jesus and they're nowhere to be found now. And you might say, well, what happened to them? Somehow they, they left the track. They, they fell away. How do we categorize them? How do we make sense of that? That ultimately is up to God, but I will say it is sad. And they, they have become enemies of the cross of Christ. For Christ did not send me to baptize, 1 Corinthians 1.17, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should, be, should not be made void. For the word of the cross, listen to this, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. Amen? But there are enemies of it. Satan's an enemy of the cross. There are, there are groups that don't want to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are some who deny the sufficiency of the cross. This could be the Judaizers saying, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you got to add this, this, and this. you got to keep these laws, etc. Paul gives us four descriptions of these folks in verse 19, and they're not pretty. Here's what he says. Whose end, these enemies of the cross, their destiny, NIV, is destruction. That word is ruin. Their destiny is perdition, you could say. Number one. Number two, their God is their appetite, all in verse 19. Some versions say their God is their belly or their stomach. Three, their glory is in their shame. This word means disgrace. It points to potentially sensual excess. And four, fourth description about these enemies of the cross they set their minds on earthly things. Something's happened, something frightening has happened to this group of people. And their end is not an upward call to receive a prize in Christ Jesus. Their end is destruction. If anything, they're going to get a downward call. Their God, and here's the problem, is their appetite. Now, I don't think that Paul is talking about an appetite for pizza or hot fudge sundaes or anything like that. I hope not, because I'm going to partake probably in all of that today. <laughs> but I think the, ap the God being their appetite is they always want the next thing, the next excess. They, they are never satisfied. It's always the one thing after the one thing. It could be food, but I think more than that, it, it's about power. It's about sensuality. It's even about religious control. 
If this group is the Judaizing heresy, then their power is manifested in forcing people to keep the food laws. Oh, you can believe in Jesus, but you got to do this. You got to eat this diet. You got to keep these holy days. You got to dress like that. You got to fast twice a week or you're not saved. And when they hear the gospel that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, plus nothing, they lose their power. Why did the religious leaders condemn Jesus? Not that he hadn't done miracles. Not that he didn't raise Lazarus from the dead. But because their power was threatened. They knew he was the heir. And they said, come, let us kill him. Why? Because they had power, position, prosperity. And Jesus was reigning on their parade. We can't allow that to happen. And so they killed the Son of God. Power will corrupt people. I'll tell you, I am amazed at what people will say from platforms of power, how they've reversed positions within a couple of years from what they said before. Now they say something else. You're like, what? Where'd they get that? But here's the deal. Mankind intoxicated with appetite and power and glory and whatever you want to add to the list, they become enemies of the cross of Christ. And their end, sadly is perdition or destruction. The problem is that they set their mind on earthly things. Now I want to pause here for a second and tell you next week we're going to tackle the issue of anxiety and worry. And when we get to that section 6 through 9 in Philippians 4, we're going to look at Paul say, brethren, set your mind on things that are beautiful and lovely and pure. And that's one of the keys to godly living. Set your mind on things above. But Paul says the problem with this group of people is they become so earthly-minded, whatever the nuances of that are, that they have lost their way. They are off the track, and they are leading people in the opposite direction. They're no longer in the crosswalk, if you will. They've gone astray. And this is why Paul warns about this. He says, look, Follow my example. Stay away from those other things. Now we're going to segue back to a positive as we close here. And this is one of identity. And it's, uh, your identity in Jesus is a huge part of running well. Here's what it says. For our brethren, citizenship, the idea of this word is from the root polis. It's where we get police, metropolis, political, politician, but it's the idea of citizenship. It was big in the ancient world. It's big today. And here's what it says about believers. Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. This is a present tense reality, brethren. You, if you're a believer, are a citizen of heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I our citizens in heaven. Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are recorded in the rolls of heaven. Amen? Amen. I want my name in that book. And it's there by the blood of the Lamb. Praise the Lord. By grace, through faith. That's who you are. Now run in keeping with who you are. It ain't gonna do it if you are trying to set the pace for a company or a team or a family and you read your Bible once every couple of weeks, 
you ain't going to set the pace. When the boys were growing up, oftentimes worship was on in our home as I was preparing on Saturdays, oftentimes for a Sunday sermon. Our house was immersed in the things of God, not in a overbearing way. I didn't line up the kids and roll the pulpit into the living room. All right, boys, open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we will now parse the Hebrew. No. (laughs) We had to keep it at their level. But it was more about the things of God working in our lives that then spilled over to their lives. Are you with me? This is what happens. If you just simply walk with the Lord, the Lord will take care of it. And you don't have to be phony, etc. I heard a story about the uh, second coming and all of this thing, all of this that goes with it, the motivator of the second coming. We're waiting eagerly for Jesus. And at the height of the racial crisis in the U.S., in the early 60s, two signs hung in the wall of a restaurant in Decatur, Georgia, The first sign read, Jesus is coming again, exclamation point. The second sign directly below the first sign read, we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody. That's the same reaction that I got at first service. (laughs) It's supposed to show you the hypocrisy of the two signs. Never mind. I shouldn't have done it again. You know, I I thought there was hope for second service. It's not my fault, okay? <laughs> Never mind. That's, a, that's another joke, but we won't go there right now. Verse 21. We eagerly wait for the Savior. This is the prize. This is the finish line. This is what Paul says, I know one day it's happening. I will attain. When the Lord Jesus comes, when the race has been run, when we reach the finish line, here's what will happen. He will transform the body, the Greek word soma, our physical body, of our humble state, our weak mortal bodies, new living, into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, the last part of verse 21 is an allusion to Psalm 8, 6. Thou dost make him rule over the works of thy hands, Thou hast put all things under his feet or under subjection under his feet. When we reach the finish line, here's what's coming, brethren. Jesus Christ is going to resurrect us. Now, if he comes prior to the second coming, to be absent from the body is to be where? At home with the Lord. Your body simply houses the essential you. You are not strictly your body. You are spirit housed in a body. One day, should Christ tarry, you will be absent from this body, but you will be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. We make it our ambition, whether absent or present, to be pleasing to him, says Paul. But when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and I believe in one second coming, this is my view, two things will happen at the second coming. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead in Christ. Amen. We'll be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. This mortal will put on immortality. Then will come to pass the saying, death has died 
in victory. Now, the older I get, the more I'm rejoicing in the reality of a new body. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I could go many places with this, but I'll leave it alone for right now. But for any of you who've dealt with any level of pain or a sense of the reality of decay that happens in this fallen world, you know what I'm saying. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, hold on, it will. But on a serious note, we've all probably watched people who've been affected by this terrible curse and the fall of this world. And it is brutal. I will tell you that coming into the ministry when I was younger, I was watching pastors teach, and I had a fervency for the gospel, for apologetics, for teaching. And I dove right in. And once I became a pastor, I didn't realize that this is just a portion of the job. There's a lot more to it. And a lot more is dealing oftentimes with death. And any of you who have dealt in that realm, you know it ain't pretty. And some of the hardest stuff in life. But the good news is I've been able to stand with families at cemeteries and in you know, funeral homes and mortuaries and say, your loved one will rise. Because the Bible emphatically teaches the resurrection of the dead. And when we get that new body, I think it's going to be about the age of 18 when I could eat burritos at midnight and nothing happened to my physique. I could eat a burrito before playing racquetball and nothing happened to my digestion system, my physique. Now, burritos are the enemy. They just, they just walk by and I gain three to five pounds. Why, oh why, oh Lord? But a day is coming, not that far away, when this mortal will put on immortality. And then death will have died. And everyone that we have lost in the Lord, we haven't lost. We will see them again on a great reunion day in the kingdom of God to which we are all citizens. Amen? It's a good time for a praise the Lord. Amen? This is the gospel. See, if I were just running for temporary things, I'm not sure I could keep going on sometimes, but I'm running toward a prize that has eternal dividends. In fact, scholars, when they talk about the resurrection, say our body will be in perennial rejuvenation. This is Murray Harris. He has done an in-depth study called Raised Immortal. He puts it this way, and it's beautiful. He says, Paul is saying then that in place of an earthly body that is always characterized by physical decay, indignity, and weakness, the resurrected believer will have a heavenly body that is incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form and appearance, and with limitless energy and perfect health. Once he experiences a resurrection transformation, man will know perennial rejuvenation since he will have a perfect vehicle for God's deathless spirit, a body that is invariably responsive to his transformed personality. And so we wait eagerly. We anticipate 
with great eagerness that day when our king will be there, when he wipe, will wipe every tear away from our eyes, when there'll be no more mourning, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. The former things will have passed away. The race will have been run. We will be at the finish line, brethren. Keep running. Amen? Amen. And know that you don't run alone. Brethren, we have a remarkable love from our God. It's an amazing love. And I think First John sums it up in a beautiful way. It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. and It has not yet appeared yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. For we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. The day is coming when the race will be finished. And the down payment is already ours in the Holy Spirit. Amen? We've been sealed with the promise, just anticipating the day when it all comes to consummation, when it all comes to reality. And in light of that, we run. Father, thank you that by the power that enables Jesus to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Thank you that the power of the resurrection that now pulses in our beings will one day be ours in perpetuity in the kingdom of God. Thank you that we are citizens of that, of that kingdom by the gospel. Thank you for pursuing us and rescuing us and help us, Lord, as we run this race. Give us fresh endurance. Some are here and they're, they're tired, they're weary. Some have found some fresh breeze lately and they feel like they're running well and others, they may feel like they've fallen off the track. And you know every heart, Lord. You know what each of us need, and my prayer is simply this, that you would empower your people with the word of God as we digest it, as it nourishes our souls. May it bring fresh wind to our sails, fresh bread to our souls. If you're not a Christian with your head and heart bowed, now is your time. The Lord's been knocking on the door of your heart. Won't you open it up? He alone possesses and gives eternal life. And he'll grant it to you if you'll simply pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God and King and Savior. I believe you came into this world and died on that terrible cross for me. Pray it if it's you. I believe that you defeated death by the resurrection, just as you said. And I'm going to place my faith in you. I'm repenting of my sin right now. I'm sorry for it. Thank you that you paid for it at the cross. Lord, I'm afraid to die. I fear it, but thank you that the fear of death can be in my rearview mirror by trusting in Jesus. And so I do now. 
If you've been lagging behind in this race, it would be a good time to rededicate your life to the Lord so that you can pick up the pace again, get back in the race. He will give you everything you need to run effectively. He is a beautiful storehouse of everything we need. So Lord, as we just take a moment of Selah, we take a moment to pause and meditate on these things. We just want to say thank you. We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your love for us. It's amazing. We thank you for the hope for the future that we have. We thank you that you've surrounded us with other wonderful believers that encourage us. Thank you for faithful mentors and other pastors and so many who have showed us how to run through thick and thin, ups and downs. Keep them strong. Maybe there's people we don't often pray for, missionaries and the like, because we think they've got it all together, but they're like us. We pray for the many faithful pastors over the years. The media would love to focus on the ones that fall, but we're going to praise you for the ones that have been faithful. Thank you for faithful believers around us and disciplers, and we can go down a, a list of gratitude. Thank you for fathers who were faithful. Imperfect as they were, they tried to set the pace, and they did it. Let us, let us be quick to thank them, Lord. Maybe those who stepped in as surrogates, spiritual fathers, those who opened up their arms and their hearts to us. We're so grateful for all of them, Lord. I just pray that today we'd find fresh mercy and strength for living. This week, help us to have the wind at our back so that we can run and finish well and be good examples, Lord, to the flock. We love you, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.